our work lives are ultimately still personal. You've got to know that the person who you're giving all that time to is somebody that you respect, that you trust, and that you want to follow. Welcome to Unsung Leaders, a weekly showcase of behind-the-scenes innovators who you may not be familiar with. These are team players who create workable solutions for society, people who do great things without needing to steal the spotlight. So come on, society, let's set down our selfie sticks and achieve great things. Together. All right, so today, Steve, we're chatting with Sheraton Caloria, and you know him very well because you worked with him at Sony, but he's also uh, been head of marketing at uh, brands like Martha Stewart Living and conglomerates like NBC. Sheraton is an amazing guy, and this will be a very interesting podcast for a number of reasons. One, uh, Sheraton has worked with a lot of unique personalities. He worked at NBC when it was owned by GE, so it was the big company. Then he ran Martha Stewart's company, which you know, was an iconic brand run by an iconic person. Right. So he, there's that. Then when he came to uh, Sony, he managed a Dr. Oz account and worked with him on all kinds of things, which are very interesting. We had to thread the needle between yeah. being an authority and also being a doctor a and being a personality. Sure. And he oversaw Days of Our Lives and all the NBC programming when he was there, which had some of the most loyal fan base you would ever have on a show. Fans and, you could convert into kind yeah. of a, a team of promotion, right? A but promotional what's, team. But what's great about Sheraton, well, and we'll hear what he has to say, is along with his great attributes as a business person and being able to run a lot of things, he was a he was just in the forefront of creating a diverse organization. And uh, I think it's going to be very interesting what he has to say about that. Terrific. Well, here we go. Here is Sheraton Caloria. Have we started? Yes, we have. Sheraton, this is what makes us fun is these kinds of comments. Right. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so, any, Sheraton, thank you for doing this. Happy to do it. Key here is, like, to share information and have fun. And Sheraton, um, I understand you and Steve worked uh, at Sony together. I've known Sheraton, my gosh, a long time. And we, we first came across each other when he was the head of daytime programming at, um, at NBC. And... Uh, it was funny because he always impressed me as somebody who was very level-headed, very smart, very organized, very particular about things. And um, uh, so it, it was in those early days, I thought, man, there, there'll be a period of time in life where I think we're going to be working together. So uh, and fortunately, that came true because uh, over the years, Sheridan worked for Martha Stewart, uh, which we can talk a little bit about um, how that was. But I, I'm just curious, how was that, Sheraton, back in the day when you worked at NBC and then went to work for that company? What? How was it? What was the big difference? How was it working, going to work for a big corporation where it's as big corporate ownership and then going to work in a company where the corporate culture is really established by a particular person? It's the, it, it was very stark contrast because at the time I worked for NBC, they were a unit of General Electric, and it was a very sort of by the books, you know, in order to order office supplies, you basically had to fill out, you know, a dozen forms, um, as opposed to going to Martha Stewart, which, as you said, was very entrepreneurial. Um, the founder, the creative visionary, the name is on the door, and the name is literally on the paycheck. And so I think the 
level of personal investment that was uh, that that Martha Stewart herself has had. She, I think, there was an expectation that throughout the employee ranks, that investment, that sense of sort of ownership, if you will, would also be materialized in the in the sort of you know the work kind of style work process, always being accessible, um, kind of being willing to, uh, you know, not literally empty out the trash cans on the one hand, but, and then be ready to present to the board on the other. I think it was sort of being a jack of all trades, I think was sort of part of the culture there. Whereas I think at an NBC, the roles were very much articulated and defined. And if somebody sort of stepped beyond their prescribed role, it was kind of, I would say, frowned upon and could be sort of a politically uh, negative or damaging move for somebody to do. So, Right. You got to tell me this, because you and I always used to laugh, not laugh about it uh, in a bad way, but I mean, your job at NBC, you were handling a lot of the daytime soap operas. And you and I are both fans of those. But what just, you know, give us some insight what it was like uh, handling that. Because I, I find it fascinating because it's the one area in the business which I think is greatly underappreciated. It's 52 weeks a year. You're cranking out scripts every day. Actors show up to work. It was very workmanlike. And not it was glamorous from the outside, but it was hard work and greatly underappreciated, I think, by you know, people in the business as to how hard it was. Well, I think, you know, what you just expressed is, I, is one of the fundamental reasons that I was really happy that our career paths crossed because you demonstrated an understanding and an appreciation of that in all of our interactions, which frankly, um, for the, probably aside from the ad sales unit at the network, nobody really appreciated. I mean, I think the, the money people understood that, that the daytime soap operas were a predictable and steady source of revenue. But in terms of the creative folks and the rest, I think it, the tonnage, the idea that each of these shows has about 250 hours of new content every year, I think people were sort of overwhelmed by on the one hand and took for granted on the other. Now, for me, I you know, I used to say that, you know, many times I would, the attitude would be, oh, well, we've got bigger fish to fry than the soaps. And my attitude was, well, I'm responsible for them. So the fish looks pretty big to me. And I came to really enjoy it. And as well, because of the volume of the content and the long-term connection that the audience had with the shows, I really had a great respect for the audience and a great respect for the process. And it, made it sort of for me felt like a a real challenge and one that was also enjoyable as well because of the pace of it i was never boring um you always you know you had new data every every single morning in terms of overnight ratings and um if you if things went askew uh, you you know you had a chance to to fix them and so um it was a great challenge but i actually found it very rewarding for all those reasons um you know what I was thinking when you were talking, I was thinking about viewership and loyal viewership and that being kind of a team, right? So how did you reach out to your viewership and how did you kind of create that culture of, did you consider them as part of the team? Absolutely. I mean, when I was doing this, it was, um, 
basically 2000 to around 2005. And at that time, the where we were in the digital realm was really an opportunity for us to connect. We we under, I launched the first blog based on a character, sort of imagining what the character would write about. I was able to look on what were then called chat rooms, which were sort of instant feedback. So you'd be able to see how a particular episode would fare in New York three hours before it would air on the West Coast and see that people were enjoying it or a surprise that we had for them they, they liked or didn't like. And so it was an early warning system that way. We did a lot of marketing events where we took our um, actors to meet their fans. Um, and so it was, to your point, very much that that constituency um, was really right up at the front. Um, because if you lost them, getting them back, like any business, is extremely difficult. Soap opera fans were like part of a, a religion. I mean, they were extraordinary extraordinarily loyal, but Sheridan was in front of all that in terms of getting them more engaged because once you got those viewers emotionally engaged, you absolutely owned them. And they felt like they were part of that family. So and he was, Sheridan was right at the front of that. And, we, and just like any good team, then I'm just curious, Sheridan, how, uh, so you, you were listening to your audience. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that was great is that um, we had two shows. We had Days of Our Lives and a show that only ran for about a decade called Passions. And what was unique about Passions was it was going after younger viewers, but it made it a, its business goal was to attract a diverse audience. So there was a uh, Latino family at the core and an African-American family at the core, as well as Caucasian families. And what we would do was through the feedback loop that we would get through press appearances, through email, through actual snail mail. They still would mail us letters back in those days. Um, we would find out from them sort of what were, what were the trends that they were following. We used to bring on um, certain guest stars that would appeal to them from music, the worlds of music and other parts of popular culture. So it was all just a way to constantly give them something fresh and different and also attract news to what we were doing so that it would never feel stale. Um, and again, just when you're on the air every single day for 50 years, as you know, its days ultimately became, it's easy to get uh, you know taken for granted. And so, we kind of reminding people, hey, we're here through some sort of a stunt was a part of how we kept our audience engaged for sure. Sherry, you mentioned diversity. Uh, you check a couple of those boxes and. The one thing which I've always had great admiration for you is that as you went down the road, whether it was working at NBC or working with Martha Stewart or working at Sony, you just did it. Like you made diversity part of what you did without big announcements or whatever. And I was always amazed at like just it was part of how you viewed the world, um, which is, again, one of your strongest qualities. How did you view it in your mind? Like, did you, when you set out to hire people or look at a show or look at your group of people that are part of your team, like, how did you mentally approach that in terms of to create that diversity? Um, well, it was very much a conscious effort. I don't think, you know, it, it has to, it has to be something when there's as much work left to do. It has to become a business strategy. And I think, Steve, among, for example, your 
group of direct reports, that was a diverse group as well, I think. And, and that's something yes. that, that I know didn't happen accidentally from your perspective. I think on our, on, on one of the, one of the things that I always thought about was that, you know, in television every and in entertainment broadly, everybody wants to get younger viewers. And the demographics point that in the United States anyway, we're becoming a much more diverse culture, racially diverse, uh, ethnic, or rather lifestyle diversity in, in all of its, you know, multi kind of colors, if you will, is something that's being, we're all more aware of. And so if you're not if the work that you're putting out there for people to consume doesn't reflect that, I just think it's bad business, if not immediately, certainly in the midterm and long term. Um, and then from a hiring perspective, one of the things that had to happen was to work with our HR department to say, make it a practice to always present highly qualified, diverse candidates. Like I, and in, in doing so, that would allow us in, you know, I ran the marketing department. Um, we, I think, had probably one of the most diverse workforces. And, um, and, and, it, and it's, it's for all the reasons I just said, it, but it, it, it didn't happen by accident. So uh, there is a uh, psychological theory called object relations theory. Okay. And the idea of it is that relationships heal. And in our culture that is so uh, selfie stick oriented, for lack of a better term, um, sure. it's so important because, uh, actually health and well-being develops from attention, the tension of an interaction. So being able to survive and learning how to work well with others, uh, who have different points of view is pivotal in our own growth, our own emotional growth and our own evolving as human beings. So we need each other's differences in order to learn and grow. Uh, but so often we're in our head, we're waiting for the other person to stop talking so that we can tell them what we think instead of really listening to the other person and incorporating those differences. Um, so that theory, I think, applies so well to business. So in my mind, there's two steps to diversity and making it work. Uh, step one is always obviously bringing you know, having diversity happen by how you hire people and who you hire doing that type of thing, which is obvious. The less obvious thing is creating an environment where diversity actually works. So in other words, if you're hiring people, you say, okay, I'm going to hire someone who's gay or someone who's African-American or someone, however you define that, you have to make the environment comfortable for them to do well. And to me, anybody can hire anybody and go out and say, oh, I'm, look at me, I'm being diverse, I'm hiring the right people. It's a lot harder to create an environment that makes it comfortable for those people because typically they will be the minority. So how did you, like, how did you look at that? Because I, the one thing I will say in the marketing department at Sony, uh, Sheridan had a very diverse group and everybody got along and it was, it was a great team effort and people were comfortable with each other. And, and again, that is really hard. It's just hard. Uh, how did you approach that, Sheraton, to make that work for you? I, I, I think one of the things, you know, we, we've tried to do things which fostered people interacting with one another in an informal basis, whether that was something like uh, a, a bowling night 
or getting together in the summer uh, on Fridays for you know to play ping pong or whatever in the in the park that we had there uh, on the studio lot. Um, and I think, and then just recognizing people in different ways when they achieve things kind of on their own. We had some folks who you know were directing films uh, in their time away from Sony, and so we'd sort of celebrate that. Another person who went off and became a photographer, and these folks represented diversity, but also just represented diverse interests. And by sort of shining a light on that and celebrating those things, um, I think in, in many ways, it just helped personalize the relationship that people had with one another. Um, and so I think that did it a lot. I think in some ways, marketing attracts a gregarious kind of personality in many of the roles. And so I think people are willing to kind of lower the barriers and uh, get to know each other in a much more social way. So that might have been an advantage to our discipline. I'm not, I, I'm not sure, but I think we had a head start maybe that way. Um, so uh, I, I would say, you know, and we, we, had a, we had a couple instances where there were some hiccups for one reason or another, and we kind of leaned into those and addressed them quickly. I mean, there was some, there was a situation where there was some tension and we talked things through and kind of had a, you know, a bit of a intervention. So we didn't, we didn't, if there were difficulties, we didn't ignore them. You know, we didn't, we addressed them and tried to solve them and move forward. And I think that also um, helped us succeed. Steve often uses uh, sports analogies and I, I don't want to go into another one, but he, the, the, the point of his yes, analogies, <laughs> the point of his analogies is that, you know, there's different <laughs> positions on every team. Uh, and that can lend itself to diversity, too. But what I'm more curious about, uh, so because you worked at NBC, you worked at Martha Stewart, you worked at Sony, two of those were huge corporations. Martha Stewart was a personality a brand. Um, how important is the mission statement, and is it different? And it is, a, is that a way to get people on the same team? And was Martha Stewart's vision or mission statements uh, more... Uh, talked about than, say, NBC's or Sony's. Uh, how important is a mission statement in getting people on board? I think it's I think it's very important. I mean, I think under Steve's leadership working at Sony Pictures Television, I think we all shared a mission and a vision that was set from Steve in terms of being aggressive, being competitive, and never settling um, sort of for second best and, and pushing through to always you know, do our best to, to achieve whatever goal we set. I think at Martha Stewart, there was the, it kind of get, it was a little, um, it was a little gauzier, if you will, but I think quality was the true North there and it through, through an aesthetic lens, but quality in all things, whether that was in art direction or photography or design, um, it, it all had to be done to the highest standards. And I think that to me felt like one of the, the the key missions. I think at NBC, you know, the mission was about delivering the greatest number of viewers to advertisers. And I think that becomes, that can lead you down certain paths, which I think don't make a ton of sense all the time to an audience member who might not understand a show about eating bugs like Fear Factor being on the same network as, say, The West Wing. That may feel incongruous, but from a broadcaster's perspective, it actually made sense because they both delivered high ratings. Uh, so I think, I think mission and the, the, the understanding of it and helping people to understand what we do. I mean, in my role in marketing, 
our role was unique from a lot of other marketing teams in that we were here to support reaching our sales objectives. And so our marketing teams always needed to remember that that was the mission, um, doing it, doing it well, doing it inventively, um, with quality and taste. Sure. But we had to remember sometimes, you know, you might make a different kind of decision if you were doing something just to reach an, a consumer. But if you're trying to reach uh, somebody's going to buy programming, it's just a different kind of, of mission. And so that was ad, being an advocate for that, uh, was an important thing, particularly when people were new to the team. Um, because they had to really kind of get with, you know, develop an understanding of what the mission was. So I think it's, I think with, I think if people don't have a shared sense of mission or vision, it's uh, really a recipe for not, not succeeding. I think the interesting thing, um, as I'm thinking back to Sheridan's time at Sony, we were, there was a huge, there was a, Huge change in the business from when Sheridan first came into the company, um, extended through his time there. Is that early on we would have TV shows. You paid people. You paid for advertising, whether it's bus boards and you know on-air advertising. And all of a sudden, we woke up one day and it was all about social media and trying to reach people in a different way. And it required uh, Sheridan jump in on this in a second, but. A huge U-turn in the way of uh, how you thought about moving consumers to take an action. Absolutely. And again, it was harder. It was harder for us because we were like the third. You know, we would help ABC market a show. We would help CBS market a show. But in some cases, we were marketing Dr. Oz directly to the consumer. But I mean, it was a huge shift. Even probably for us in a weird way, different than viewing habits changing. It was just like, oh my God, we've got this show, well, people aren't listening to radio commercials anymore. People aren't listening, looking at billboards, or people aren't looking at bus signs. They're going to social media, and they're using that as a way to determine what they're going to watch or where they're going. I think, I, I think that's right. I think the first thing we had to make it clear was that we, we could we could engage, and we, you know, we, we, we would partner. We would certainly alert our network partners to what we were doing, but by virtue of being at the studio, it meant we had the closer relationship with the production with the with the writers, the directors, the showrunner, and with the on-air talent, the you know the performers, and so what was great about this was, I mean, I remember for a show like um, Community, we kept that show on the air because of very specific campaigns targeted to rile up the fans that were maybe few in number, but but uh, you know, very excited about the show and would get amped up and then sort of show their force on social media. Similarly, we had a, a comedy on ABC a few seasons back called Dr. Ken, and we wanted to kind of break through and we did live viewing parties where the cast was pulled together on the studio lot, live tweeting along with their show with the New York feed. And these were just things where um, we kind of got in front of them, had a plan, and I mean, again, just it, it, it's a, it's a, it became another metric as well that the networks would be looking at to see the volume, the level of engagement, the excitement, either, you know, and, and it, it, and I think for, for something like I said, like community, I think it kept that show on the air probably two, at least two seasons more than it would have otherwise. 
So let me take you back to we talked about it a few minutes ago, which is how did diversity in the in your on your team help you make that transition? Well, I think um, one of the things was we had some folks who were we had some people on the digital side who were really tech excellent at the tech side of it, and were right there at the forefront of knowing all the new platforms that were coming out. And so they would sort of direct us to use them. Then we had people who were more focused on PR and what is a good story? What's a way to get people's attention? We'd sort of layer that on top of it. And then, of course, we had teams that were great with getting the talent to say, yes, I'll do that. And those were sort of the PR people. So those skills really did not overlap hugely other than the fact that they were all part of the marketing team. So by working together, and kind of making it clear what role each person would play, it helped to define what we wanted to do and then make it happen in a way that, you know, engaged the audience. So I, I think definitely that's that's where the diverse and you know, we also had the benefit of having some young some of our, you know, new recruits, so to speak, most junior people, they were they were digital natives. And so they actually had another role and to sort of have a voice and a seat at the table where they might not have had in some of the old media where they, well, frankly, didn't really care about it, as you said, Steve, and weren't as experienced in it as some of the, you know, the more veteran people were. So I think that was all those things together kind of helped us exploit that successfully. So I'm really hearing um, there's not only diversity, cultural diversities and things like that, which we can tap into and use to the benefit of the team, but there's also um, skill set diversity that you have to really look at and value as well and make the environment comfortable for people to contribute the outside-of-the-box thinking or the skill set that they might have developed that's different than the person next to them? We had a we had a, a, a day-long, which was, I mean, I could probably count on one hand the number of times we took a day to do something that was team building just in and of itself, but we did a day-long exercise where uh, <clears throat> various teams from the marketing department would take sort of take it was it's it, it, it take a sort of psychological profile test and then there were some exercises that were sorting shapes and these kinds of things and at the end there was a score that each person got and you would be placed on a continuum to show where you were most where your inclinations were some were very superficially some might have been more analytical and some might have been more creative and so imagine that on a on a continuum. But with people, we literally had people stand in order of where they were on that, on that kind of lineup. And in doing that, everybody walked away from that really appreciating, doesn't make somebody good or bad, depending on where they stood. But we went back to that day, literally for years of people saying, wait, I need an analytical thinker here. And I know that's not my strength. And they would call somebody in to help them solve through something. So we we definitely saw that, and um, it it became something where you know people would go to they'd say, hey, how can I develop? How can I be more creative if I'm more analytical? Um, and vice versa, you know. So I think that just people becoming more aware of it and in a way that was 
sort of celebrating what they were strongest at, as opposed to saying they were weak at something else, was a really effective tool for us. You know what's brilliant about what you just said is you took the value judgment out of it. So I'm not better than you or worse than you. I'm either the same as you or I'm different than you. And then we can harness those differences to create a better collective, right? Absolutely. You know, it was funny. The, 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 the results of this thing came out in a multicolored pie chart. And several of the groups actually posted them on their, you know, in their office. So you would sort of walk down or somebody's looking for a creative strength, you know, they would knock on that person's door, if you will. So it, it, it became a real kind of, um, like you said, no value judgment to it, but just a really kind of a good tool that we all used. This speaks to Sheridan's leadership because, you know, you look at millennials in particular, they do not want to hear what they, uh, about what they don't do well. <laughs> they want, they want to get a medal for how good they are at something. And to have an environment where it's okay to say, I'm good at this, but I need to know more about that. And, I'm, and you open yourself up to that, knowing that you're not going to be judged by the person you work for, just says all you need to know about the kind of environment Sheridan set up for that marketing group. From a cultural perspective, so... Uh, is, is marketing, uh, in your viewpoint, uh, do you have a responsibility to forward a certain um, agenda? And I don't mean that in a negative way, but uh, for the, the, the betterment of uh, the culture or who makes that call? Or are you always tracking what is going on in the culture? I think, I think you have to be tracking what's happening in the culture so that you're not sort of setting a trap for yourself by being insensitive to a particular audience segment. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I was in a coffee shop today and I looked at three enormous posters hanging as decoration within the coffee shop of the sort of the customers who would come into the, come into this place. This was not Starbucks. I just, I'll just say it was a European brand, but um, every face on the posters was a Caucasian face. And I just thought that in 2018, that seems a little out of step with, with where the culture is, with where their customer base is. And so that was just something which was for me a glaring kind of marketing fail, if you will. Um, so, to, so that's sort of, that's sort of my, my take on that. I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of sometimes marketers, I think, get, get over their skis, so to speak. And in a quest to be different or in a quest to be viral, go viral, what have you, you know, those things can backfire. Um, They can also just flat out fail. Um, So I think, you know, being edgy is one thing. Um, Being kind of dangerous could be irresponsible. But again, I think it goes back to the brand. I think there are certain brands that are expected to take those risks and there are other brands that are not and don't really have permission from the consumer to, to do those kinds of things. So I think it, it, it kind of falls to the application, I think, to really make that decision. I know when Sheraton uh, first joined Sony, um, part of what he was responsible for was the marketing of Dr. Oz. And, and that was, again, it's that if there was ever a uh, program or personality where you had a, you're kind of making sure you just kind of figure out a way to market 
to an audience to get ratings versus having that delicate balance of how you position a doctor and what they're supposed, what information <laughs> they're allowed or should be communicating to the audience. That was it. So it was birthed by fire for Sherry when he first came to Sony on that. You want to speak to that at all? That's it, it, was, it, to your, it was an interesting process for you. It, it, it really was. And I think, um, I think, you know, going back to, we talked earlier about mission and I think Dr. Oz wanted, wants, still wants Americans to be healthy and to be their healthiest, you know, self that they can be. So I think through that, again, that lens, it's about, there's a sort of really pro-social kind of, of, of agenda or objective there. I think in messaging that, as you said, Steve, we were selling a TV show and TV, first and foremost, people want to be entertained. And in daytime television, inviting in a person to spend an hour with, whether that's Ellen or whether that's Dr. Oz or whether that's Rachel Ray. I mean, these are people that are sort of, they're a, they're a substitute kind of ersatz friend for that hour. Um, so they have to be a, a desirable presence in that way. And at the same time, you've got to want to come back from our perspective multiple times during the week. And so if, you know, we had to re let people know it wasn't going to be an hour of don't do this or do this and being lectured to, but rather, you know, give people the promise of learning tools and tips and techniques that will, you know, that they can integrate in their life with, a, you know, a minimum of pain or effort, um, and, but yield benefits as a result. And at the same time, don't overpromise. When you work for Martha Stewart, putting Martha Stewart's name on everything was it. Because her brand meant something. If, if sure. it's so, whatever it was sure. she was selling, she could do that. With Dr. Oz, I mean, he was talking about supplements every day. You couldn't, we couldn't put his name on those. We couldn't even think about that because he had to be Switzerland. Because if the viewer thought he was pushing a specific supplement, then all of a sudden the show was an infomercial. So it was a, we, I, I remember always having those conversations about how he had to maintain his kind of neutrality, knowing that the day he mentioned that a certain supplement would cure cancer, that they, it was off the shelf the next day. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad that we're getting that out there. And just to re, just remind <laughs> and underscore people you know, it was it was the great sadness of, of us seeing people take his image and the show's logo and put yes. it all over Facebook and, and you know, give the implication that it was an endorsement or that it was something that the show or he was profiting from and neither was the case then or now. Um, and it, it's funny. I mean, they would bend over backwards to not say product names. You know, you'd say acetaminophen, and you wouldn't say Tylenol. Um, now, obviously, we there were some things where we would work with advertisers and um, do a, 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 a sort of an integrated commercial message, but those be, those were ex explicitly identified as such, and you know, to the point of thanking them for their sponsorship. So, I mean, there was no we we went to great pains to not confuse those messages. Um, and to keep the show pristine, because again, at the end of the day, he's a medi licensed medical doctor giving medical advice for all intents and purposes through the proxy of the show. So we, we there was a, I think everybody felt that responsibility. Um, and it, it was, and it's just, it was frustrating sometimes when the, those who were 
you know, sleazeballs out there taking his name and likeness and using it without his permission. Yes. It was frustration, I think, for all of us. Bill, I think Sheridan has said it all. I want to leave this with, with, with one thought because it's a, it's a funny anecdote, which I don't even think I've mentioned to Steve before. But when I um, left my job at Martha Stewart, um, I reached out to somebody who was going through a similar thing and I said, give me some advice. They gave me two pieces of advice. One was take a trip and, and, and relax, which I ignored. The second piece of, because I'm a nervous oriented person, I wanted my next job. But the, the next piece of advice was the next time since you've been at NBC, I was at ABC before that, you, you got your ticket punched in terms of high quality companies. Pick the person you want to work for and with. And in that instant, I thought of Steve Mosco. And in addition, I got the benefit of working for a great company at Sony as well. But that is something that I think for people, I think, need to always remember is that, you know, our work lives are ultimately still personal. And you, you've got to know that the person who you're giving all that time to is somebody that you respect, that you trust, um, and that you want to follow. And so that was what drew me to Sony and to work for you, Steve. And I thank you for never for a minute making me think I'd made anything but the absolute correct decision. Wow. Thank you. And, and the feeling is mutual and you know that. It, there's a big world out there where all the things he discussed and talked about apply not only entertainment, but other things. A <laughs> anyway, Sheridan. Sheridan, great. Well, thank really, you. Really well, nice talking to you. thank you guys yeah. for, thank you so much. Enjoy London. I'll see you soon. All right. Keep it up. This is a great project. This has been Unsung Leaders. If you want to uh, nominate your own guest, somebody that uh, has made a difference in your life and community and is a team player, uh, please let us know by logging on to our website. That's www.unsungleaders.com. And let us know. And maybe uh, we'll uh, be interviewing you or somebody in your life that you find is a team player. Uh, this is Bill Benson for uh, me and Steve Mosco. Uh, have a happy day.